Between about 1970 and the 2000s, uh, immigrant Latinos were the single biggest factor in solving a huge problem of 20th century America, the urban crisis, and turning the cities around. Um, now it is rural areas that are suffering some of those same kinds of symptoms, right? Depopulation, uh, aging of the population, lack of economic opportunities, uh, and a lot of rising drug addiction and crime. So the very same process in which when you have declining native-born populations and you desperately need new residents, new workers, new school children, new uh, you know, baseball players, um, that Latinos are the solution to this newer problem as well. From the McCourney Institute for Democracy and the studios of WPSU on the campus of Penn State University, I'm Michael Berkman. And I'm Chris Beam. And I'm Jenna Spinelli, and welcome to Democracy Works. Uh, guys, today with us, we have one of our Penn State colleagues, A.K. Sandoval Strauss. He is the author of uh, a brand new book called Barrio America, How Latino Immigrants Saved the American City, and I think paints uh, a different picture of Latino immigrants than the, the one that we hear from <laughs> President Trump and others, to, to put it very mildly. Oh, it's, it's just the opposite direction. It's literally looking at the same phenomenon as a almost exclusively positive outcome, set of outcomes, as opposed to uh, the Trumpian brand of the Republican Party, which looks at it as almost exclusively negative. Right. I also I find the book quite timely and interesting at this moment because of its uh, focus on urban America. And, uh, you know, what we what we've really seen emerging in democratic politics, not only in the United States, but we've talked about this with some of the uh, other Western democracies and the populist conflicts uh, that we see in those in those countries is this uh, emerging political divide between urban and rural parts of a country. Uh, certainly in the United States, uh, urban rural voting differences have become more pronounced since uh, Donald Trump's election. It's becoming the dominant divide between the parties, uh, coupled along with uh, education, uh, those who have college education and those who don't. But that, too, follows largely a rural-urban divide. And, and he's looking at the other side. We hear all the time about rural America, declining, uh, declining industrial towns, uh, how these helped to uh, lead to the election of uh, Donald Trump, but much less about cities and about immigrants in cities. Yeah, I mean, it is it is interesting, and and I suppose worth mentioning that uh, that in the nineteenth century there was also an urban rural split, but it was exactly the opposite in terms of parties. Right, the Democrats were the were the farm party, and the Republicans were the uh, were the elite in in uh, in the city. Yeah, sure. I mean, it is not unusual to see a sort of uh, a, a sort of core peripheral kind of divide develop in countries, in other words, areas core to the economy, areas more peripheral to the economy. What Andrew is doing here that I think is so valuable is providing another side to this story, and that is the positive role that uh, immigration, Latina immigration from uh, from the south of the border has played in building the United States. And I think it's, you know, he'll make the argument, but we should make it a little bit too, that from his perspective, Latino immigration into urban areas basically saved them at a time where white flight had kind of emptied cities out, 
uh, that they b- helped to build these cities economically, culturally. Yeah, and now the the same thing is happening in 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 smaller cities and and towns across the country that kind of also are seeing declining populations. You know, uh, immigrants moving into these communities and doing Andrew argues much the same thing that they did in in cities a, a generation ago. You know, I'm really struck. Uh, we we had Andrew Sullivan here last week, and we talked to him coming from a very different kind of perspective. I think, and you know. Andrew Sullivan wanted to take uh, – I thought he was basically saying white yuppies from Brooklyn and move them out into rural areas uh, to sort of seed them with uh, more cosmopolitan views that he thought would be very valuable to kind of breaking down the political polarization. But probably even more important will be uh, you know, later generation – uh, Hispanic immigrants moving out into these areas and becoming a part of the community. And, you know, we might anticipate that what happened in urban areas will happen out there, too. Well, yeah, I mean, it's it's that's one possible outcome. I just think it's just um, too early to conclude that uh, what happened in Chicago and Philadelphia is going to happen in Youngstown and... Yeah, you know, and you can't really blame people, I think, for looking at, say, what some of these immigrants do to get into the United States, like the hardships that are involved, the cost that they have to pay to do it, and not think, man, these people are going to take a lower cost job than I will any day of the week, given what they've gone through to get here. Well, the other thing that I think is essential to point out with the difference between, um, you know, big cities and smaller cities is the one that you mentioned, that there's a culture of immigration in in a lot of these bigger cities where, you know, seeing someone who looks different from you is, is an everyday occurrence. And in a lot of, you know, uh, rural America, small yeah. town America, that's not the case. And so all of a sudden, or hasn't historically been the case. And so when all of a sudden you, you your town of 30,000 has 500 yeah. Somali residents, that's a big deal. And it's not something that you or your town has, has any experience dealing with. Add to that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, when, you, when, when people are more likely to see immigrants as others. Right. There's a reason, I think, why we've come back to immigration several times on this show. We'll no doubt continue to do so. It is, it is a thorny issue for our democracy, for democracies around the world. And I think Andrew offers uh, an interesting perspective, as we said. So let's go to our interview with A.K. Sandoval Strauss. Before we get to this week's interview, I wanted to take a minute to tell you about our sponsor on Democracy Works, the Penn State World Campus and its Psychology of Leadership program. Sharing responsibility, empowering others, looking forward, motivating from the head as well as the heart, building trust through collaborative decision making. Is this the type of leader you want to be? Then apply for the master's program that will get you there, the Master of Professional Studies in the Psychology of Leadership, offered entirely online by Penn State University's World Campus. Learn from talented faculty with top academic credentials and professional experience. Learn from other students from diverse backgrounds and industries. 
Master of Professional Studies in the Psychology of Leadership at Penn State allows you to be the leader you've always wanted to be. Learn more about the Psychology of Leadership program at worldcampus.psu.edu slash leadership. Again, that's worldcampus.psu.edu slash leadership. And thank you to the World Campus for supporting Democracy Works. This is Jenna Spinelli here today with A.K. Sandoval-Strauss. Thanks for joining us today on Democracy Works. Thanks for having me. So we are going to talk today about Latinos and democracy, uh, some of the the themes that you cover in your new book, Barrio America. Um, And I thought that maybe we could go back a little bit and and start with some history. Uh, You you say in your book that uh, in in 1950, there were uh, about 4 million Hispanics in in the the U.S., if I'm recalling correctly. As we think about the start of the civil rights movement, Brown versus Board of Education, all these things are kind of percolating at this this point in time. So um, how how did... how do Latinos see themselves at, at that point in time? How do they think of themselves as citizens? At that point, under American law, they were technically white. The Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo of uh, 1848 specified that they were full citizens. However, in actuality, they rarely enjoyed mm-hmm. the, the full citizenship rights, um, and they were frequently targeted for discrimination, for disfranchisement, and for violence, right? You see, for example, uh, large-scale killings of Hispanos, of Mexican-Americans in the 19-teens um, as sort of a, the clearest sign that they were not considered full Americans by a lot of the majority population. Yeah, so so given that, um, you one might think that there, there would be kind of a... Uh, they would be eager to join in with African Americans and kind of the you know civil rights movement. But I understand from your book that that might not necessarily have have been the case for everyone. Yes, I mean at the grassroots there was certainly some uh, a sense of of commonality in the face of of discrimination, uh, but sadly the main uh, Mexican American especially. Uh, civil rights organizations really clung to their status as technically white uh, and often tried to avoid being associated with black people because they felt that that would lead to their being classified as minorities and discriminated against further. So their strategy for uh, a decade or two or in some respects even longer since the 1920s um, was to really present themselves as like other immigrant stock Americans and thereby to claim a sort of European ancestry that would entitle them to the uh, rights and privileges of whiteness. There were a certain number of organizers, especially in Texas and in some cases in California, who said, this isn't right. We're sort of pushing away people who are in almost almost the same uh, uh, situation that we are and to turn our backs on them uh, and imagine that we're going to be accepted by the white majority is is both a moral error and a strategic error. Um, And it really wasn't until uh, about 1965 as the uh, de jure or de jure uh, kinds of discrimination against black people were rendered illegal, that Mexican-Americans and other Latinos began to see, okay, perhaps we should take a different route. 
thinking about Latino participation or perhaps lack thereof in, in, in the, the civil rights movement, are, were there or, or are there some downstream uh, implications from that to some of the things that we're seeing about you know, lower voting rates and, and these sorts of things? I mean, there may be. Certainly one possible comparison is with African-Americans uh, who collectively have about the same uh, socioeconomic status as Latinos overall. Um, but of course, African-Americans participated in the, the civil rights movement. And for them, um, having the vote and then having it taken away is a matter of deep historical memory, right? It was taken away by, uh, by violence. It was taken away by uh, administrative skullduggery. Um, but whereas in the immediate post-Civil War period, there were lots of African-American office holders, that dropped off dramatically to virtually none um, by the early 20th century. So for them, you know, that vote really means something. Now, this does not mean that votes don't mean things for, for other people, um, but not to have been, at least at that point, deliberately disfranchised, right, to have come to this country and perhaps been ignored, perhaps been discriminated against, but not deliberately disfranchised on the same scale as African Americans, that probably does account for some of the difference um, in, in, uh, in voting habits. I think it's... Um, I think it's worth pointing out, though, that there have been particular moments in history, especially within cities, where an African-American, uh, Latino, and liberal white uh, voting coalition emerges and accomplishes remarkable things. You devote a whole chapter in your book to, to the year uh, 1965. Why, why was that, that uh, such a big year for this, this population? Well, there were two reasons. Uh, the one that's more commonly recognized is the Hart Seller Immigration Act of 1965, which dramatically uh, expanded the uh, range of people who could come to the United States and become citizens, but which also simultaneously, in effect, reduced those kinds of opportunities for uh, Hispanics and people from Latin America. Uh, the other reason was that uh, that was the beginning of a series of agricultural crises in Mexico that drove a substantial number of people to migrate to the United States. But suddenly, after 1965, there are more Mexicans at a time when the law uh, has rendered it harder for them to enter legally. After 1965, uh, what you saw uh, was that, and I think we should stop and remind ourselves that that the reason that those restrictions were in there is that segregationists in the United States Senate specifically wanted to curtail migration from places where there are not a lot of white people, right? So they specifically blackmailed the Johnson administration saying that we are going to keep this bottled up in the Senate, right? So this is Senator uh, Irvin, especially of North Carolina, um, who was responsible for this. And he ultimately sort of gives in and says, okay, I, I don't want to lose this entire law. Um, and so he is forced to accede to these limitations. So the, you know, what is has since then been viewed as a crisis should really be viewed as a uh, a result of very poor drafting uh, back in 1965. Right. And and at the same time too, we're also seeing a lot of white flight, particularly in cities, which which kind of opens up in in some ways. I think you 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 argue in your book kind of this kind of um, uh, opens up the cities for, for Latinos to, to come and really kind of make, make, the, make these communities their own. Yes, absolutely. I think we have to remember that urban America, uh, in terms of 
the total number of people living in cities, in terms of the total amount of economic activity happening in cities, really peaks in 1950 and begins to decline thereafter, uh, especially because of white flight. So part of that is a story of simple racism of white residents that will not have even one black family as their neighbor, even if that black family is of a similar economic background as themselves. Uh, and the other part of the story is that the United States government subsidizes suburbanization through a number of enactments from uh, highway construction to urban renewal uh, to the mortgage interest deduction. So the result of this is that there are overall fewer people living in cities. Remember also that the African-American Great Migration comes to a, an end in about the late 1960s. So literally there is no... American-born population that is increasing its presence in cities so that their entire neighborhoods with falling populations, as a result, you have falling rents. And that's very attractive to newcomers who are looking for inexpensive places to live. Right. And this, this kind of notion of, of homeownership really, really resonated during this, this, this time period as well. So you have uh, um, you have Latinos moving moving into cities throughout the sixties, seventies, on and on. Um, what does what does their their representation in in government look like at the the local level, even scaling up to to the house and and things like this? Well, as of the late nineteen sixties, at the time of the establishment of the Congressional Hispanic Caucus, um, there are three members of the Congressional Hispanic Caucus um, from Texas and New Mexico. So a, a very small number indeed. As the population grows, I mean, if we want to jump ahead very briefly to the present, uh, where you have four U.S. senators who are Latino, uh, 39 members of the House of Representatives, uh, a much more commensurate uh, uh, representation, um, somewhat less than the uh, 10 or 11 percent of votes uh, that are cast by Latinos, and certainly much less than the roughly 17 to 18 percent of the population uh, who are of Hispanic origin. Um, but you you see a very small group of largely Mexican-American politicians trying to figure out how they can have a part in uh, American politics. Now, both parties are wooing them, but the Democrats have a substantial advantage uh, in part because of the nationalities division, right? The Democrats have a big part of the Democratic National Committee devoted to uh, pulling in people who are the children, grandchildren, et cetera, of immigrants, some of whom use a different language in the home. So they try to arrange events specifically for people of Italian ethnicity, people of German ethnicity, uh, people of Irish ethnicity. And so at this point, uh, people who are calling themselves Spanish-American um, are trying to figure out how they can be part of that. So that is, of course, related to their effort not to be considered of color or minorities. And that really comes to fruition in the Viva Kennedy campaign of 1960, uh, where it turns out that, uh, especially in Texas, or almost entirely in Texas, uh, the Mexican-American vote is, is pivotal in that extremely close election, uh, giving the electoral votes of Texas to the uh, Kennedy-Johnson campaign. There were efforts in the, the 80s and into the, the early 90s by uh, Republicans, right, Reagan, George H.W. Bush, to, to try to court, court them over to, to that side of the aisle. Absolutely. Now, I mean, remember, this is an ongoing effort. Uh, you see uh, Barry Goldwater, who is from Arizona, can see a substantial Latino population there, a Mexican-American population primarily. Uh, Richard Nixon is 
saying, hey, we need to, to figure out how to appeal to these folks. They are a swing constituency. Uh, it certainly comes to its uh, uh, greatest fruition in 2004 under uh, George W. Bush, who, you know, you can certainly have your disagreements with his foreign policy and other policies, uh, but he certainly was uh, enormously effective at courting and getting uh, the Hispanic vote. Of course, in 2004, uh, he garners about 39% of it. It's also worth remembering that in the past three decades, that was the only time that a Republican presidential candidate got a majority of all the votes. So really, he sort of had found a way to, to, to see a future in which Republican gains among Latinos is going to be their ticket to a permanent position in, in national politics. This is, of course, Karl Rove's entire plan. And it's going along very effectively uh, until the Republican, the sort of the xenophobic portion of the Republican Party uh, rises up in anger. You mentioned earlier that uh, Latinos represent about 10 percent of the, the, the kind of votes cast as opposed to like 18 percent of, of the overall voting eligible population. What accounts for, for that discrepancy and, and, and how does that compare to the, the kind of difference between other, other ethnic groups? Well, generally speaking, um, there are two factors involved here. Uh, one is age and the other is citizenship. Um, Latinos and Latinas on average are much younger um, than especially Anglo-Americans, but, but all other kinds of Americans, and many of them not being 18 yet uh, are not eligible to vote. Uh, the other factor is that uh, a substantial number are uh, not yet naturalized or, or uh, don't have the status required to to cast a ballot, so they are excluded, uh, you know, legitimately on that basis. So when you combine the two, um, you know, you you might expect to see perhaps twelve or thirteen percent of the vote um, being Latinos and Latinas uh, if they were to vote in similar proportions as their presence in the eighteen and over population, um, but. Essentially, voter participation among Latinos is lower than uh, for almost any other group in the United States. And that's certainly something that uh, political consultants are looking very carefully at. Yeah, yeah. Do, do you have any sense of, of what, what might account for that? That is a very good question. Um, some of them come from countries in which the government is highly corrupt and unreliable, and they don't necessarily see um, what advantages they would have through uh, sort of supporting particular candidates for president. Um, others are just you know, part of a lower income population. So again, lower income people of all backgrounds uh, tend to vote at a lower rate. Uh, and then, of course, there have not necessarily been the kind of efforts to turn them out that you might expect. Uh, and here, I think we learned, for example, in Florida uh, in 2018, that was an election uh, at the gubernatorial, the senatorial election that easily could have gone to the Democrats and according to certain polling was expected to. And in the aftermath, uh, even Democratic consultants had to say, we sort of were lying down on the job, right? The Republicans were out there, despite the basic disadvantage of trying to get Latino votes during the presidency of Donald Trump, um, that they were out there hustling, not just the Cubans necessarily, but you know other groups, whereas the Democrats did not do their due diligence. And, and if they had, they'd probably be in a much better place in the Senate uh, and among governorships. And you, you argue in your, your book that this, um, this fear kind of comes from mostly people living outside of cities or the, the places where, where Latinos and Latinas tend to themselves live. Uh, can you just talk a little bit more about what that dynamic looks like? 
Yeah, absolutely. I think it's very important to uh, remind ourselves that that initial initial mythology of the blue-collar revolt simply was not true. That sort of thought that, oh, it was people pressured by globalization, pressured by uh, labor competition. Um, you know, that's why they voted for Donald Trump. But you know, subsequent examination of the actual voter data files showed that there was no correlation between people who had had a factory shut down in their community and voting for Donald Trump. There was no correlation in people being in direct competition with immigrants for jobs and voting for Donald Trump. Uh, in fact, it was not the poorest members of a white community uh, or of white communities, but those who are somewhat more well-off that were most likely to vote for him. Also, more broadly, um, it was precisely those people with the most acquaintance with Latino and Latina and other immigrants that were most likely to vote for Hillary Clinton, uh, because they simply did not, by and large, buy into the anti-immigrant agenda that, that uh, Trump brought into politics. So it becomes a sort of cities and inner metropolitan areas versus rural areas divide, um, whereby those who don't know very many immigrants are the most likely to want to exclude them. Mm-hmm. And, and so the the thing, too, that, that we're also seeing happening is, you know, what, what you talk about in Chicago and Dallas through the end of the 20th century is now happening all over the country. I mean, I, I grew up in, in northeastern Pennsylvania and saw cities like Hazleton and Scranton and, and those those places where having some of those same struggles of, of a, a, a large, at least proportionally large to the overall area's population, you know, Latino immigrants come in and um, there's there's tons of pushback and, and xenophobia and, and, you know, all these things. And, and I, I just wonder, like, from, from your research, your experience, what is what is the best way forward where there's, there are these kind of changing demographics and, you know, not wanting to be, be sensitive to the, the, the immigrants, but also kind of being sensitive to people who are dealing with this, this kind of rapid change? Right. Well, I think the, the important thing to remember is that if between about 1970 and the 2000s, uh, immigrant Latinos were the single biggest factor in solving a huge problem of 20th century America, the urban crisis, and turning the cities around, um, now it is rural areas that are suffering some of those same kinds of symptoms, right? Depopulation, uh, aging of the population, lack of economic opportunities, uh, and a lot of rising drug addiction and crime. So the very same process in which when you have declining native-born populations and you desperately need new residents, new workers, new school children, new uh, you know, baseball players, um, that Latinos are the solution to this newer problem as well. And again, ironically, as you've implied, uh, some of the places most dependent upon immigration generally, including Latino immigration, which is the sort of single biggest part of it, are where you see the greatest reaction. So the classic example of that uh, is in Iowa, right, in Steve King's district. Uh, the fourth district of Iowa is heavily agricultural uh, and has losing, been losing population for quite some time. Um, they desperately need workers for packing plants. They def- desperately need workers in agriculture. And all of the states immigrate, excuse me, all of the state's population growth over the past few decades has been you know, created by Latinos. And yet you have this guy who's busy palling around with white supremacists saying shockingly untrue and vicious things about Latinos, uh, so much so that, that he neglected his constituents and he got kicked off the agricultural committee of the House. 
you'd think that, oh, communities that need new immigrants would be the ones most in favor of bringing them in. Um, but because there is this sort of imagined panic, or I, I say real panic based on imaginary reasons, right, where they are told, oh, immigrants will take your jobs. Well, not true. They do jobs that native-born Americans don't want. They'll say, oh, immigrants commit more crimes. In fact, you know, Everyone agrees, up to and including Rupert Murdoch, the chairman of Fox News, who has tweeted, no, immigrants create, excuse me, immigrants commit fewer crimes than native-born people. So they have to keep making up false reasons why folks in rural areas should fear immigrants, because if the truth were to be known, right, then the obvious measure would be, well, let's invite more of them in. Yeah, or I guess the, the other kind of way forward would be to put forward candidates that, you know, whether they're, they're Latino or not, that kind of more, more closely can, can speak to, to these communities and, and not, not carry some of that, that xenophobic rhetoric forward. Yeah, and I think it's very important to recognize that, you know, as you say, some of these candidates will be themselves Latino, some will not. So Mark Levin, for example, uh, who is representative of, I believe, the 39th District of California, which is coastline between uh, Long Beach and, and San Diego, uh, he is not a Latino guy, but he's part of the Congressional Hispanic Caucus precisely because he understands that part of his responsibilities are you know, looking after his constituents. So... Again, the, the GOP had made dramatic strides in that direction, uh, beginning with the 2013 Growth and Opportunity uh, uh, Program report, also called the, the Autopsy of the 2012 Election, where they said, you know, we must make progress on courting Latino votes, especially by not being anti-immigration. That's something they've walked away from. And even, you know, the, the once poster boy of, of Latino Republicans, Marco Rubio, walked away from his participation in the Gang of Eight uh, immigration plan of 2013, which garnered, I think, 73 votes in the Senate, would have been enough to override a veto, even if there had been one. President Obama would not have done that. Um, but he walked away from his own plan. John McCain in 2012, as a candidate, walked away from his participation in the Gang of Eight. So one might, in the interest of, of national well-being, hope to see a return to a more sane attitude toward immigration. Um, the fact that the United States desperately needs more people uh, seems not to have figured into the current GOP strategy. Is there anything to be gleaned from the, the rates of, of change in, in terms of, of how quickly immigrants come into a particular community and, and, and what that might mean for how people already in that community perceive the, the new folks coming in? Well, I think it's important to distinguish between the uh, absolute numbers and the rate mm -hmm. of change, right? So just to reiterate, um, in places where there are a lot of immigrants and where a lot of immigrants have come in and are a bigger part of the community, those places tend to be very friendly toward immigration. There have been some political science findings that in overwhelmingly com white communities or overwhelmingly white Anglo communities, where you have even a small influx of new people from Ethiopia, Somalia, uh, Guatemala, Mexico, uh, you do begin to see a sort of political reaction uh, apparently based on fear. It certainly isn't based on anything real because we know from a lot of sociological and anthropological and criminological research that these new Americans work longer hours than native-born Americans. They commit fewer crimes than native-born Americans. They spend more time with their families than native-born Americans. They spend more time at worship than native-born Americans, i.e., they embody precisely the kinds of things that native-born Americans often pride themselves on. 
So you have to stop and ask yourself, if it's nothing material, if it's nothing social, what's behind this reaction? Do you think we are at or, or heading to a place where the, the Latino community will feel some of that same sense of, of disenfranchisement that, that, that um, African-Americans did during the, the civil rights era? I certainly would hope so. I think it's very important to, to be clear that within the electoral system, we are seeing a new variety of Jim Crow or a new variety of what some historians have called Juan Crow uh, in an effort to, you know, boost the political power of non-Hispanic whites at the expense of people of color generally. You would think that that would uh, uh, make an impression. Uh, and certainly, I think it is important to note that um, non-Hispanic whites are the only demographic in America uh, that vote majority Republican, and not necessarily by that much, right? There's sort of a, a stereotype that, oh, working class whites all vote Republican. Well, no, right? In 2008, 40% uh, of them uh, voted for Barack Obama. Um, but every other demographic group in America uh, has become lopsidedly democratic, not out of their material interests necessarily. Remember that Asian Americans, on average, uh, are doing a little bit better economically even than white people, but precisely through the sense that um, you know, there's an ascendant white supremacist movement, sometimes self-dubbed, sometimes hidden, uh, that clearly puts the interest of some Americans above and before the interests of other Americans based on race. So again, every single you know African-American, Latino, um, Native American, Asian American demographic group can see this happening. Uh, it's really just a question of how big the margins will be. Are there places that have done this right or that we, we can point to as, as a model of places where, where immigrants have come in and there's kind of been a, a successful melding of, of cultures and, and these sorts of things with, without the kind of fear and xenophobia? Well, I will say certainly there have been areas where, where the successful melding happens. I, I don't want to say that it is completely without fear and xenophobia because let's say the state of California, which is a minority majority state with a huge, you know, almost half uh, Latino population, uh, it is now the fifth largest economy in the world. It's an extraordinary powerhouse. And in, uh, for example, Los Angeles, uh, you're seeing the lowest crime rates ever reported. And that sort of suggests a successful, you know, integration. Uh, and it has become a, a very pro-immigrant uh, state. That doesn't mean that in 1994, right, Governor Pete Wilson did not try to run an electoral campaign and, and won, won, won re-election on the basis of demonizing Latino immigrants, right? Uh, but that seems to have given way to the sense that, well, actually, these newcomers and, and those from other parts of the world are pretty good for our communities. So, for example, there's a thing called the, the WE Global Network, which is uh, 26 uh, mostly Midwest kind of Rust Belt municipalities, all of which have banded together to say, you know, the future has to be more immigration because that's the only path we see out of the economic slump we're in, out of the demographic slump we're in. So certainly um, people in cities uh, – that have not necessarily seen as much immigration are looking for more of it because they realize just how helpful these newcomers have been. What does the, the data suggest about what where kind of demographic trends might go uh, moving forward? I think the first thing to remember 
is that the only thing that keeps this country out of the same demographic death spiral that we see in Japan, for example, the same demographic crisis, crisis that we see in Italy, in Russia, in Germany, and practically every industrial or post-industrial nation, right? The only thing that prevents that uh, is immigrants and their kids. So the native-born population um, uh, does not have a high enough birth rate to maintain our numbers. Now, a lot of people think that that's still because of immigration, strictly speaking, but at least across the U.S.-Mexico border, um, net migration fell to zero in something like 2006 or 2007. So the sort of beneficial increase in our population uh, is, at least among Latinos, mainly from the children of immigrants and the grandchildren of immigrants. So that is again, essential to our, our demographic survival and our ability to, to maintain things like social security, a workforce, uh, recruits for the military. I think the other thing is that the Latino population is very young. So um, they do not have the same kind of demographic weight as other populations. Um, and so for that reason, I think you might expect to see, you may see greater participation in the future. Um, but I think, again, economically, people forget that the non-Hispanic white population is on average pretty old, on average a little bit beyond their childbearing years. So uh, I think the question is, whom do they think is going to feed them and provide them with medical care and provide them you know, with uh, ongoing funding for all of our programs, uh, if not for these newcomers? Yeah. Well, we have barely scratched the surface, I feel like, of your of your book. Uh, we will link to it in, in the show notes. Uh, folks can, can hopefully pick up a copy and learn more about the history and, and kind of where, where we are now and you know, what we might see moving forward. But uh, this has been a great conversation. Uh, thank you so much for joining us, AK. Thank you so much. I've had a great time. So that was uh, terrifically interesting, and this is really uh, timely and, and yeah, important. Yeah, we both learned book. a lot from Yeah, really, book, yeah. really did. Great interview, too. Yeah. Uh, you know, one thing I was uh, really intrigued by there, because I've been thinking about it a lot and all the conversations we hear about, is Texas ready to turn blue? And what did Beto manage to do in Texas when he was running against Ted Cruz unsuccessfully uh, about the relatively low rates of voting among uh, Latino Latinos, Americans. right? Uh-huh. Yeah, it is. It is. Uh, um, you know, the question of how uh, impactful Latinos are going to be on American politics and, and for that matter, American society really hinges on this question going forward of their voting rates. Yeah, right? and, and and yes, and it's it not, not only their voting rights, but their no voting but rates, but their voting rates. Right. Mm-hmm. Yes, their willing their willingness to vote. And, right, and you know, I mean, there is interesting sort of sociology on how different ethnic groups, when they came into the United States, did or did not get very involved in politics. Right, the Irish got very involved in political machines in northeastern cities. Uh, Italians got less involved in them, but got more involved in building family businesses. Uh, one thing that he talked about that I thought was uh, really interesting was that in the uh, civil rights movement of the 1950s and 60s, uh, that uh, Latino Americans did not really become involved in that movement at all. Right, and uh, for and for very racial reasons. Right, right, right. But you know, when you think about 
African-American political involvement now. I mean, African-Americans are the base of the Democratic Party and their voting rates are as high, if not higher, right. than uh, most white American uh, and representation, group. too. And, and I mean, not so much in the Senate, but in the House. Yeah. I mean, I wonder, too, if just not being very involved in the civil rights movement, they missed out on experiencing some of the tangible effects of being involved politically. I mean, African-Americans recognize uh, the role that politics played in their gaining political power and in particular the role the Democratic Party played. Yeah, absolutely. But I mean, it, I think it also goes back to the the uh, um, the the kind of history of civil society and uh, the way that related to politics in Latin cultures, right? I mean, if you're coming from a place where there's not as much political engagement, yeah, you know, when you come here, I mean, yeah, I mean, that's a that's a broad brush to paint all of Latin culture with, but but still, I think there's something to that. So this demographic group tends to be younger, which means that they have more time to become socialized into American politics, and you know, maybe voting rights rating rates will uh, increase over time. Well, I mean, you know, it is not. They'll be a formidable block if they do. Oh, yeah, yeah, but I, you know, I think it's also true that there's something common about the immigrant experience where the first generation is only so engaged they don't know the, the language as well they don't you know you know um, they kind of keep to themselves and then the, the the children and then the grandchildren it's a much different story so uh, you know I their ties to the home country is less their ties to their you know the language is less and so the idea that that change that kind of diminution of the you know the ethnic ethnicity of where you're from almost inevitably leads to more political engagement in, in future generations and I just I, yeah. I would be very surprised if you didn't see that here yeah. well. I mean after Mitt Romney lost the Republican Party, wrote this big memo of how we have to expand our, in, you know, our footprint. Sure. Well, and because George Bush, too. I mean, W George W. Bush in particular was a case study in how Republicans can win Hispanic votes. I there's, mean, there's a lot of connections <laughs> there, right? I mean, they're pro-family, they're pro-faith, they they're, pro they're, oh, you know, they're basically conservative. Basically culturally conservative. Yeah. Right. And, you know, it's just sort of a it's a turning of their back towards them that has certain appeals. Short to term, America. it's working. Long but term, long I don't term, see how it can. Sure. This has been uh, really interesting, a great topic. Uh, you know, we've talked about immigration quite a bit in terms of its the way it's contributed to populism around the world. So um, thanks, Jenna, for a great interview. Thanks to AK for coming. Uh, and thank you all for listening. My name's Chris Beam. I'm Michael Berkman. This has been Democracy Works. Democracy Works is produced by the McCourtney Institute for Democracy at Penn State and WPSU Penn State, Central Pennsylvania's NPR station. Andy Grant is our engineer, and our editors are Mark Stitzer and Chris Kugler. Additional support comes from Ann Danahay, Emily Reddy, Shireen Stanford, Craig Johnson, and the rest of the team at WPSU. For more information on this episode and detailed show notes, visit our website at democracyworkspodcast.com. And if you like what you heard today, please leave us a rating or review in Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening.